Good morning, Midtown Baptist Church. It is a delight to be with you this morning. My name is Brian Parks, and uh, thank you for praying for me just now. Uh, as your elder led us in prayer, I was really honored and humbled and touched that you would pray for me and that you pray for, I know you've been praying for Covenant Hope Church in Dubai frequently, and we are seeing the effects of your prayers in the life of our church. We're seeing people come to know Christ. We're seeing Christians grow in their understanding of the gospel and their identity and role as Christians there in Dubai. And we're seeing the Lord work through us to bless the nations that are around us as well. And your partner's with us in that. We thank you for that. My wife, Joanne, is with us here. Uh, you may know that we have lived in Dubai now for 21 years. I grew up, we both grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we both went to White Station High School, became Christians here in Memphis. So uh, coming back to Memphis is a homecoming for us. So we're delighted to be here. And I'm especially privileged to bring you God's word this morning. When King David was old and nearing his death, he needed to prepare for who was going to follow in his footsteps. And so he gathered his highest and most powerful assistants and advisors to him, and he gave them instructions. He told them, go get Solomon, my son, and I want you to take him out and publicly anoint him as the king, put him on the royal king's donkey, and declare him the king to the people. Last of all, King David called Solomon to himself, and he gave him some final instructions. He told him, be gracious with some people put others out of power, and most of all, he told him, walk in the ways of the Lord. People in authority do well when they're stepping aside to instruct those who are following them, to give them final instructions. What are the most important tasks they have when that person is stepping aside? That was true of King David. And it's true of King Jesus as well. But David, of course, was only a human king. Jesus was and is the God-man, the king who currently is sitting on the throne by the Father, exercising all authority and in heaven and in earth. How much more important were his final instructions to those that he had chosen? That's what we're looking at today when we're looking at Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 through 11. Luke's account of Jesus' final moments on the earth before he ascended to heaven and is now reigning at the right hand of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to ask you to please stand with me as I read the Word of God. Follow along with me as I read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up 
after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray just briefly again and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you're our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. What I want you to be convinced of from this text this morning, more than you were convinced when you came through that door, is that we are spirit-filled witnesses of King Jesus to the world. We are spirit-filled witnesses of King Jesus to the world. My outline is three points this afternoon, excuse me, this evening, this morning, rather. We meet in the afternoon, by the way. Uh, my my uh, outline is three points, and if you're taking notes, this might help you to follow along. The three points are the Spirit, our witness, and His reign. The Spirit, our witness, and his reign. Now, Acts is a continuation of the writings of the gospel writer Luke. We could call the book of Acts Luke Volume 2, so to speak. Luke, of course, was a trained doctor, and his attention to detail served him well in his secondary vocation as a historian of the life and ministry of Jesus, and then the life and the ministry of the apostles, particularly the apostle Paul, of course. When he wrote his gospel and when he has written this second volume, the Acts, or we could call it the Acts of the Apostles, he wrote this to someone that he calls Theophilus. It's a common name and it means lover of God. No one knows exactly who Theophilus was, Many commentators believe that it might have been or he might have been a wealthy man who was funding the publishing of Luke's accounts. That was common in that day and age. 
But here at the beginning of Acts, Luke addresses Theophilus just like he did at the beginning of Luke. And in this introduction, when he addresses him, he uses three long sentences to focus our attention on what Jesus did and said, not during his ministry before his death and resurrection, but between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Or as Luke says in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up. So in brief, to the point, this is a summary of the last chapter of the book of Luke with an emphasis on Jesus' command for his disciples to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a promised spirit. So that's the first point, the spirit, the promised spirit, you could even add. We see that in verses 1 through 5. One of the first things that Luke makes clear to us about these 40 days between his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, and his ascension is that Jesus wanted to make sure that many of his followers would see him multiple times doing all kinds of different activities during that time. He met them in different settings. He even ate with them. Paul tells the Corinthian church in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that the resurrected Jesus appeared to over 500 of his followers at one time even. All of those encounters are the many proofs that Luke is referring to there in verse 3 over a period that's longer than a month. Now, that period, he points out, is 40 days. The number 40 is very important in the Bible. 40-day periods, or even at some point in time in the Old Testament, 40-year periods, were pivotal times. They often indicated preparation time before a great work of God, a new shift in history in what God was doing in the world. So we see that Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights. We see that Jesus was in the desert being tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And so now we see another set of 40 days. And so that tells us that God is doing something amazing. A new time in the history of mankind and God's work in the world is about to break in. Jesus wanted his disciples here to be sure that they hadn't just imagined his resurrection. He wanted them to be confident that he was really alive. Now, if you're not a Christian, you are welcome at Midtown Baptist Church. I'm not a member here, but I know this church well enough to know that they, the members of this church, are delighted that you're here. This is a great place to learn about the Christian faith, and you should keep coming back. The more you come, the more you'll learn. If you're not a Christian, this information might be new to you about Jesus. The news that Jesus presented himself many times over the course of 40 days to his disciples. Maybe you've heard, of course you've heard probably, that Jesus is said to have risen from the dead. But not only did he do that, but he, he made himself known. He showed himself. He proved that he had risen from the dead, that they weren't just seeing an apparition. They weren't just having delusional visions of Jesus. 
these disciples. Christianity isn't primarily a philosophy based on ideas or a religion that's based on myths like other religions. In fact, it isn't based on any myths. It's based on truth. The Christian faith is rooted in real history, actual events, verified people, places that you can visit today. In fact, I live in the neighborhood, so to speak. Don't be misled by the fact that Christians have faith when some people say that's just blind faith. No, it's not blind faith. Brothers and sisters, we have faith based on facts. And if you're not a Christian, you should know that. We base our faith on historical events, things that Jesus said and did and that there are attested accounts for, attested accounts that prove to be more reliable than practically any other documents from antiquity. Read the gospel accounts, we encourage you, if you're not a believer. Ask the hard questions. Investigate. You know, sadly, most people don't reject faith in Christ because they've thought it through and they've found it to be false. No, most reject it because they find it inconvenient to bow the knee to Jesus and follow him. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That's the reason why people walk away from Jesus. My question to you is, if you investigate the proofs, will you trust in him? Will you put your faith in him and follow him? Oh, we encourage you to do that. Verses 1 through 3 in this first section of Acts chapter 1 are a broad recap of the end of Luke's gospel. We mentioned that before. But in verses 4 through 5, it's like Luke double clicks for us. He zeroes in on those very important commands that he gave his apostles before he was taken up to heaven. They were to go to Jerusalem and wait. They were to go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus began his public ministry, of course, John the Baptist had gone before him. He had called the people to repent of their sins and be baptized in the Jordan River in water as a sign of their repentance. But John the Baptist himself promised that he was not the Messiah sent from God. Instead, he claimed that he baptized with water, but someone was going to come after him, someone whom he was unworthy to even untie his sandals. And that person would baptize with the Holy Spirit. During this time after Jesus' resurrection, he's reminding them about those prophetic promises of John, and he's ordering them, it says there in verse 5, ordering them to go to Jerusalem and wait. Look there with me at verse 4 again. He says, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he himself had, his ministry had been accompanied by the power of the Spirit from the beginning of his baptism throughout his ministry. 
And he's even giving them commands here in the Spirit, as it says in verse 2. But they had not been baptized with the Spirit yet themselves. They hadn't been immersed. They hadn't been filled with the Spirit. That was yet to come. But it was a promise, a promise of the Father and even a promise of the Son. The outpouring of the Spirit of God was something that the disciples would have been familiar with as an as an idea, even though they hadn't experienced it. They knew from the Old Testament that there was a prophesied time when God would renew and restore His people, Israel, and that time would be accompanied and accomplished by the Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit. It says in Isaiah 44.3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And of course, you may remember that in Acts chapter 2, if you've read ahead, Peter is going to quote from the Old Testament book of Joel. He quotes from chapter 2, verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. What that's describing is that cataclysmic new era in God's work in the world. The apostles had experienced so much following Jesus. They themselves had performed miracles. They had cast out demons when he sent them out. But when his suffering began... What did they do? They abandoned him. They ran fearful. And now Jesus was about to leave them. He had told them he was leaving. They were weak. They were struggling with doubt. They were unsure of how they'd be guided once Jesus departed. Only a complete filling of the Holy Spirit could strengthen them, assure them, and lead them once Jesus had ascended. We're just like them, aren't we, church? Apart from the Spirit in us, our best days, we're weak, we're fearful. We run and hide when people ask about our faith. Very few of us have never struggled with doubts from time to time. And so oftentimes, we don't know what to do next in our lives to be faithful to Jesus and follow Him. But the Spirit is the promise of the Father. What a comfort to know that God has promised the Spirit to us, His very presence. The coming of the Spirit and the filling of Christians is the fulfillment of Jesus' promises that the Father and I will come and make our home with you. That's true for us, church. The disciples needed permanent, ongoing transformation to carry out what Jesus had in store for them And the one thing they were lacking, weren't lacking, I should say, wasn't better training. They didn't need a clever strategy or a more culturally relevant program, no. To become the church of Jesus Christ, they needed the indwelling of the Spirit. And so do we. We need God's abiding, indwelling presence to be the church that He intends That's one of the key attributes of the church of God. 
we are filled with the Spirit, the one Spirit. Every local church that preaches the true gospel, that's filled with born-again Christians, is a church filled with the same Spirit. You, Midtown Baptist Church, are filled with the same Spirit, that we are Covenant Hope Church in Dubai, so many thousands of miles away. The same Spirit is guiding you that's guiding us in Dubai. The same Spirit that's at work in us is at work in you. Praise God for His faithfulness to fill us with the Spirit. But there's one key difference between the situation of those apostles and ours. They had to wait for the coming of the Spirit. But you and I don't. No, the Spirit has come. Pentecost has happened. And now we live in the time after Pentecost. We live in an era of the outpouring of the Spirit. The good news is, brothers and sisters, that anyone who understands the good news message of the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ came into the world to live a sinless life and to go to the cross and die taking the punishment for our sin and then be raised from the dead, anyone who trusts in Him, when they do, they become baptized in the Spirit. You don't have to wait. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ, and you will be filled with the Spirit immediately. Brothers and sisters, you may feel like, I've done that, and I don't necessarily feel the Spirit. I didn't see fireworks go off when I became a Christian. But believe me, if you're trusting in Christ, you have the Spirit, and the Spirit is at work in you. The the apostles needed the Holy Spirit in order to carry out Jesus' mission after he would ascend into heaven. So when they asked him what would happen next, he made it clear for what purpose they were going to be given the Spirit. And that brings us to our second point, witnesses our witness. We see that in verses 6 through 8. We know from verse 12, if we read just one verse farther than our passage, that beginning in verse 6, the apostles were gathering with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, right there next to Jerusalem. There they asked him the question that was on all of their minds, of course. Look with me at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's not a particularly bad question. They knew that when the Messiah came, he would usher in a restoration of God's people. They weren't wrong about that. But they wanted to know if it was going to happen right then. Jesus wanted to focus their attention on what their role would be in his restoration work in the world and how they'd be equipped to do it. Verses 7 and 8, then, are very important verses in the book of Acts. And they're very important verses for us. Look there with me. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, first, Jesus tells them that it's not for them to know 
the times or seasons that God has fixed or determined by his authority. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, God is in control of history. The world might look like it's out of control, but it's very much in control by the Lord of the universe. When pandemics hit and nations are shaking, when coups happen, when jobs are lost, people are desperate, natural disasters happen, when you feel out of control in your life, the God who has loved us in Christ is in control. What a great comfort. What an encouragement to us in turbulent times. Are you reminding yourself daily in these times and seasons that your Father in heaven is in control and that he'll not let anything happen to you that's not a part of his plan? It's true. Now, of course, that doesn't spare us from suffering. It didn't spare his beloved own son from suffering either. But faith in God's control of all history, even our individual history, and your history as a church enables us to be confident when others doubt and fear. It enables us to be joyful even in the midst of trials and tribulations. Jesus didn't want the apostles to bother with exactly when things would happen in God's plan, and so should we not either. Many so-called ministers of the gospel have founded their ministries on trying to predict when God would execute different aspects of his plans in the world. You probably know some of them or have seen some of them on cable channels. <laughs> they write books, they put TV shows on, they rake in the money of worried people eager to try and decode the scriptures so that they can know when things will happen. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't be distracted by such men. Don't pay attention to them. Don't buy their books. Don't watch their TV shows. These things are not for us to know. If it wasn't for the apostles to know, it's not for us to know either. What is for us to know is our role in God's plans for the world and what He will give us to enable us to accomplish it now. He is going to give us and has given us the Holy Spirit so that we might be His witnesses, to be empowered to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our task, and His Spirit empowers us for it. Even in the Old Testament, of course, the Lord had told Israel that they would be His witnesses to the world, witnesses testifying to the other nations that the Lord was the only true God worthy of our worship and love. During that time in the Old Testament era, the ministry of Israel was much more like a come and see the work of God in Israel. See what the God of Israel has done and His power displayed in us. Now, after the time of Pentecost, the time of sending out his people has come to the ends of the earth. Go and tell has replaced come and see. Isaiah 43, 11 and 12 said, I, I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. 
when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declared the Lord. The apostles, of course, had experienced life with Jesus, ministry with Jesus, and now they were the ones who were going to spend 40 days with the resurrected son before his ascension. The beginning of the restoration of Israel was going to take place as they proclaimed that Jesus was Lord, that he had died on the cross in the place of sinners, taking the wrath of God on himself. And now anyone, not just Israelites, anyone could repent of their sins. All the nations had access to this good news message and the transforming and forgiving power of God. That's the gospel, the good news message that they carried. The Israel that God was going to restore was not just one ethnic group from the Middle East, no. Now, it's likely, of course, that these apostles misunderstood what it meant for Israel to be restored. They probably thought that Jesus would take the throne in Jerusalem, the throne that the Romans had taken over, and he would kick the Romans out. But Jesus wasn't about to restore an earthly political kingdom. No, the Lord was on the verge of empowering gospel messengers. The Israel that God would begin restoring was a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would worship the true God in spirit and truth. The people that eventually would be called the church. We are that people. You are that people, Midtown Baptist Church. We are that people in Dubai, Covenant Hope Church. Of course, we're not the only ones, praise God. The Lord has his people in every nation practically around the world. But our covenant community, your covenant community, is a part of this grand work of God that has been being carried out since Jesus ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago. The apostles were the original eyewitnesses. But their testimony and witness to Jesus Christ and the gospel is what we bear witness to as well. A witness is someone who has seen something and knows something that others don't. Like a witness in a courtroom who has seen what happened and testifies to what they saw and know. We too are witnesses in that we know what Christ has done and why he came into the world, and we've seen what he's done in our lives, how he's transforming us and changing us. That is how we are witnesses. We have inherited the very mission that Jesus was giving to these apostles. Are you clear on what your purpose is as a witness? Are you praying that you would be a faithful witness here in Memphis, Tennessee. I pray that you would continue to pray, that you would look for opportunities. It's the very reason why we held the evangelism seminar yesterday morning. and We talked about being motivated to share the gospel, how to be equipped to share the gospel, and how to grow in confidence to be a gospel witness. That is the primary task that Jesus has given us. We're not just hiding out and hanging on until Jesus comes back. We're to be pressing outward and pressing into the lives of people around us with the good news of Jesus. And that's why we pray. 
That's why you pray in your services for your corporate witness and your individual witness when you scatter from the church after Sunday gatherings. We pray that God would use us. Brothers and sisters, it's not just for those apostles to be witnesses. It's for us as well. And we aren't just concerned with our immediate surroundings. The, Jesus didn't want these apostles to just be witnesses in Jerusalem. No, he painted a picture for them that they would be witnesses in concentric circles moving out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts, in fact, is the story of evangelism and missions in the power of the Spirit. And so this verse 8 is a lot like a table of contents for the book of Acts. Luke first tells the story of the Spirit's work in Jerusalem. And if you were to read through the chapters 1 through 7 in Acts, that's what you'd see there. Then we see in chapters 8 through 12 of Acts the gospel pushing out into Judea and Samaria. And then lastly, we see in chapters 13 through 28 of Acts, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. In the last chapter of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's proclaiming Christ there. Isn't it ironic that the apostles thought that Jesus was about to seize power from Rome to restore Israel when the truth was that Jesus was sending these apostles out with the transforming power of the gospel message that would ultimately end up at the ends of the earth, which essentially and effectively to them was Rome itself. He was sending the power of God out to the nations to Rome and beyond. Because every gospel-preaching church has inherited the commission to be witnesses to Jesus' reign as a saving king, every church is to be a missionary church. And mostly this morning, rather than exhort you to do what you're not already doing, I want to encourage you to keep doing what you're already doing as a church. Thank you so much for your partnership with us in Covenant Hope Church. If you don't know already, some of the funds that you give to the church have gone to support ministry there in Dubai through our church. In fact, specifically, it's gone to support our pastoral intern program. We as a church find ourselves at a crossroads between Africa and Europe and East Asia. Dubai Airport is one of the busiest airports in the world. And Dubai itself and the United Arab Emirates is a country filled with 10 million people from practically every nation on the planet. Only 10% of the population in the UAE are the citizens of the country. Everyone else is an expatriate. They have a different passport than a UAE passport. And so our church has 20 to 25 different nationalities. We have 130 members. We have people from Kenya and Nigeria and South Africa, people from India, people from Nepal, people from Sri Lanka. We have people even from the rest of the Gulf area, in fact. Just recently, we had a young woman, an Emirati woman, fully covered, began attending our church and saying that she had come to know Christ. 
praise God that you all are enabling us as a church to do gospel outreach to the nations there, even as you do that here in Memphis. Through that pastoral internship, we've invited in for nine months every year over the last five years, anywhere from two to five men to be trained in pastoral ministry. The three men that we just graduated from our pastoral internship, two are from India and one is from Nepal. Uthe is the man from Nepal. He was pastoring a small church in Kathmandu. It was a very unhealthy church by his own admission. And he came to us at the beginning of the internship and he said, I want to learn how to structure and lead a healthy gospel preaching church. So he spent those nine months with us. He learned a tremendous amount. And just last month, we sent him back to Kathmandu, where he's beginning a process of reforming his church. He has even bigger vision as well. He's told us that his brother is pastoring a church in western Nepal with over 100 members, very unhealthy at the moment. And he says, I've talked to my brother. I want to teach him about how to structure and lead a healthy gospel preaching church. Praise God, praise God that that ministry that we're partnering in, you all and us, will perhaps have a gospel effect in Kathmandu and beyond in Nepal and many other countries as well. We're so, so very thankful. You've even sent us some of your people, Carson and Kanoa. We're so thankful for them. I know you're going to see them perhaps next month. Um, they're going to be coming through, I believe. We are so thankful for Carson and Kanoa. Uh, they both are tremendously fruitful in our church, and we're grateful for how you're praying for them and for how they serve alongside us there. So continue to do that and continue to send out people, people that God calls from your midst. When you read the newspaper or you scroll through your favorite news websites, do you remember that no matter what happens in controversial elections, no matter what natural disasters are occurring, no matter how the economy is doing here or there, the most important thing that's happening in the world is how God is causing the church to be built. You know, I oftentimes turn to Colossians chapter 1 and point out to people that Paul was telling the Colossians that the very same gospel that was increasing and bearing fruit in their midst was also increasing and bearing fruit throughout the world. That's still happening, brothers and sisters. It is still happening through your prayers, through your ministry. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage and exhort you to continue to do the work of ministry here in your Jerusalem, so to speak. God has brought the nations to the United States in many ways. I'm sure as you go to work and you visit the grocery store and you travel around Memphis, you see people from other nations here in Memphis. Reach them with the gospel. Share your faith with them. Seek to be a church that's reaching the nations even here in your Jerusalem. The perspective that we need to have as spirit-filled witnesses is to be missionary apostles and missionary a missionary church. 
The last three verses here describe Jesus taking his rightful seat on the throne. And that brings us to our last point, the reigning king, the reigning king. We see that in verses 9 through 11. Immediately after Jesus told them of his mission in the world, he was lifted up in a cloud and took him out of sight. And then, of course, two men in white robes, obviously angels, announced to the apostles that Jesus had been taken up into heaven and that he would come back in the same way. The ascension of Jesus into heaven is a picture of King Jesus ascending to his throne at the right hand of God the Father, the place where he will rule and reign from and is ruling and reigning from. So rather than Jesus disappearing, it's as if this is the glorified and exalted Jesus taking his rightful place in the central command room in heaven. Though he's absent from them in the body, he's very much in control on his throne. In a time of war, of course, it's always a goal of one military to destroy the command center of their opponents. Why? Well, if you destroy the command center, it's like cutting the head off of the body. That military loses its control. An army without a command center is vulnerable and likely to be routed. Jesus' ascension is like taking his place in the command center of the universe to carry out his plan to defeat Satan, death, and sin, to bring the victory that he won on the cross and in his resurrection to consummation and completion. It means he's reigning in power over all the universe, executing the plan of the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. The ascension, of course, is another very important event in the story of God's salvation of his people. We can think of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and now the ascension. They're all important in God's plan of redemption. Now, you might remember that angels show up at those very important times in God's work in the world. Can you think back to places in Scripture that that's true? Do you remember the angels announced the birth of Jesus? Angels were there at the empty tomb of Jesus. And now angels are present at Jesus' ascension. Jesus' Ascension is important enough for angels to attend because it gives us confidence that what Christ came to do to reconcile man to God will eventually be completed and finally accomplished. Just as Jesus now lives as a man with a human body in God's presence, so we have the promise of living as men and women with glorified bodies in God's presence like him. If Jesus went there, we will go there. In addition, if when Jesus was on the earth, he worked with hundreds of people to teach and lead them, now that he's on the throne and has sent his spirit, Jesus is working in the life of every believer by the power of the spirit. Millions and millions of people are being led by the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ, exalts Christ, makes Christ beautiful to people like us, 
gives us deep convictions about the truth of the gospel, emboldens us like he did with the apostles that we read about through the pages of Acts, and he transforms people like us into Christ-likeness. Jesus is also interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. He's praying for us. He makes requests for us and brings our prayers before the Father. Jesus' ascension is the next to last step in God's plan of redemption. The only thing left, his return. We worship the king who has taken his rightful place on the throne, and he's promised to take us to be with the Father and himself on a day that's coming soon. The disciples were being told to re-enter Jerusalem of all places, the place where their leader had been cruelly executed in the past days and weeks. It was a fearful time for them, a time of uncertainty. But the angels remind the disciples of exactly what Jesus promised them. He will return in the same way. He'll come on the clouds He'll come in a body, not simply a spiritual arrival, and everyone will see it. Christians, we live in the hopes of seeing Jesus' return. One of the ways that we remind ourselves of his coming is by, is by taking the Lord's Supper. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just looking back at what Christ did for us on the cross, as important as that is. We're looking forward to sitting at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's something that I'm sure you desperately missed during that pandemic that we all weathered. But we must remind ourselves regularly, Jesus is coming soon. Is the return of Jesus something that you meditate on? Is the return of Christ to rule his church and bring judgment on the earth something that guides you day to day? Brothers and sisters, keep it on your mind. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Remember that he's coming back for you. Jesus' return is one of the promises of God that we can remind one another with to strengthen our walk with him, to help us fight temptation in those moments when we're faced with it, to stiffen our resistance to sin and keep our hearts soft to the Spirit's leading. Try reminding one another, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming soon. The passage and the rest of chapter 1 are full of anticipation, aren't they? Something special is about to happen. What is the Lord going to do next, we wonder, perhaps? How will his plans unfold? What are his important instructions and how they're going to be carried out? Well, many of us have read the rest of the story, haven't we? When King David was near death, he left those final instructions for Solomon. They were crucial. They were critical. They guided Solomon. The same is true for the apostles of Jesus as his departure drew near. But there is a big difference between King David and King Jesus. King David is in heaven with King Jesus now, but King David is worshiping King Jesus. King Jesus is the object of his worship, along with all the saints who have gone before us. 
King Jesus sent the Spirit for the apostles and now for us, and King Jesus will return. Are you ready to see the completion of the restoration of Israel? It's still happening. We're connected with the men and women of these pages that we have read about this morning. The Spirit did empower them, and the Spirit will empower you and I as well. May He do it all the more to His glory until He returns. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You that You sent Christ into the world, and we praise You and thank You that You raised Him from the dead and that He's ascended and is sitting at the right hand, Your right hand that he's in control, and that he sent the Spirit to empower us to be witnesses in our Jerusalems and beyond to the ends of the earth. Oh, Lord, empower us to do that. Give us wisdom to do that. Give us strength to do that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.